This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on this special episode 200 of the podcast is the founder of Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, Ken Grossman. Welcome to the podcast, Ken. Well, thanks so much. I didn't realize it was number 200, so that's great. You know, we uh, I figured we should do something special for this episode, and so uh, so talking to you uh, seemed like a very sensible thing to do. Well, thank you. Uh, we are actually out on the coast of California at the Little River Inn, and I just want to send a great thanks out to Mark and Callie from the Little River Inn, as well as uh, Vinny Chalurzo, who uh, pulled it all together for us. Yep. Uh, I want to thank Vinny as well for making it happen uh, here on the beautiful coast today. It's uh, sunny and cool and um, not foggy. It's really a pretty day to ha- have a nice talk. What a beautiful, beautiful location to, to have a conversation about beer. Um, so, Ken, I think everybody knows uh, the history of Sierra Nevada, or at least I think they should. And if they don't, then uh, I, I don't really have any patience for them. We're going to dive in and talk about, I think, a, you know, a few big subjects like innovation, about uh, Sierra Nevada's uh, support and use of agriculture, which has been such an important piece of the overall beer making uh, you know process for you all we're going to talk about your uh, your technical perfection and this uh, you know unyielding focus on quality um, and we're going to just talk about where you are today before we do that like your flagship beer you can rely on gnd chillers for the same quality and consistency gnd guarantees that every chiller they build will hit 28 degrees without breaking a sweat they never stop they draft they craft they service each and every brewery big or small all in an effort to build one hell of a chiller. For nearly 30 years, GD has been committed to cold. Reach out for a quote today at gdchillers.com. Also, meet the latest in the BSG Hop Solution Portfolio Sativa. Strong expressions of stone fruit, floral, and resinous pine flavors and aromas define this blend. Crafted specifically for use in hazy IPAs and other hop-forward beers. Sativa is ideal for aroma, whirlpool, and dry hop additions to hazy and juicy IPAs, or for any any other hoppy styles where a combination of citrus, tropical fruit, and pine aromatics are desired. Go to bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more or call 1-800-374-2739. So, Ken, it's been a crazy year. The last 18 months have... uh, certainly been a, a difficult one for the entire world and uh, you know for for businesses and for a whole host of reasons whether it's personal and health and the people we love being affected by this or just these rhythms of and ways that we socialize and consume and drink and make beer all of these pieces have been impacted in so many ways how has how's this past year been for Sierra Nevada and where do you all find yourself now um, like I'm sure most of uh, the other brewers out there and, and most of the world, um, it's been a, a really challenging period and a, a learning uh, and oftentimes very difficult um, and uh, emotional situation to have to manage through, um, you know, the, the personal side, the uh, concerns of illness and uh, people um, working in tight spaces. And, and sure. so we really had to change our business model um, significantly. Uh, we closed our restaurants uh, ahead of sort of the uh, the required closure in California, North Carolina, but we sort of saw the handwriting on the wall. And so we, we closed up shop, uh, went to um, take out 
only for um, pretty much the whole time up until mm-hmm. the last six six or eight weeks when we did uh, reopen our restaurant. So, you know, since our restaurants are tied to our breweries physically and we have many employees who uh, have spouses on one side or the other of the wall, right. um, we, we had uh, big concerns that, um, you know, we didn't want, um, you know, anything, you know, happening to... Um, prevent us from making beer, which was really the only thing that was paying the bills. Uh, you know, as the restaurant and hospitality industries closed down, our draft beer business pretty much overnight right. went went to zero. And so we had a pivot pretty quickly. And uh, we tried to find work for uh, all those employees who were interested, who came from the hospitality side. Um, many of them uh, moved over to the production side in some fashion. So uh, mm. did repacking, did uh, additional cleaning and um, painting and working in our gardens and a, a whole variety of, of chores. So we were able to, to keep quite a few of those folks employed uh, in some fashion. And in many cases, they liked what they were doing on the production side, and they sort of moved permanently over to, uh, yeah. to working on the beer side rather than working uh, in the restaurant side. But, um, um, you know, now that we are back open again and starting to have some level of, of normalcy again, um, you know, sort of relearning how to function and and in many cases it sort of changed the way we function permanently probably with uh, you know some remote positions and some differences in how we deal on the hospitality side but uh, it's certainly been a learning experience we um, you know did okay compared to you know the the kinds of uh, brewing operations that were all on premise Uh, some of them really really struggled to you know figure out how to um, you know continue to make beer and sell beer uh, if you you know happen to have a, a bottling line or a canning line and had other ways to get beer to your consumers, um, some of those brewers did pretty well. Uh, in our case, we were you know nationally distributed sure, sure. And, and had a you know a pretty solid footprint. And those we, grocery store volumes went up and right, uh, helped yeah. offset. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you know we didn't anticipate the pantry loading, and and so that. Uh, <laughs> you know, sort of uh, shook us up a bit with the supply chain, you know, getting enough cans, getting enough of uh, the right beer in the right package. Um, So we we did fairly well, I would say. Our team really um, did an outstanding job of sourcing raw materials and our brewers and, you know, everybody else in the facility, you know, ramped up. We were at full production capacity um, for the first few months after uh, the shutdown, uh, yeah. just filling orders and, and trying to keep the supply chain going. For the past, uh, you know, 16, 18 months, have you, has it, have the, have the beers that people enjoy drinking changed at all? It, it seems to some degree people went back to what they were maybe more used to or had a, um, a connection to maybe in the past. Yeah. Um, you know, as people move from, you know, maybe their local on-premise, uh, uh, pub operation that had to close its doors uh, when they went back to retail they you know went back to brands like pale ale and torpedo and uh, those brands sort of uh, benefited from uh, the familiarity I think the consumer mm-hmm. had and the de- dependability of those brands as being you know something they can expect to get the same beer every time right um, in terms of ABV you know have you did I mean I, I think we anecdotally saw at least initially in the pandemic people were definitely buying based on efficiency in that kind of way and uh, um, you know has that changed I mean I mean you mentioned it's going to change you know the way the company moves forward does right. it does you know have you noticed some any shifts like that in the in the in the actual like 
types of beers or ABV of beers that people are consuming? Um, yes, I think to some degree people were. Um, they, one, they were buying large, larger packages. Right. So, um, you know, the 24 loose pack that was uh, sold through, um, you know, warehouse kinds of, uh, of stores uh, sort of shot up. But also the high alcohol or higher alcohol brands did seem to benefit a little bit from that. Although, again, Pale Ale did, did uh, see yeah. some decent growth, and, uh, you know, it's a moderate alcohol beer. Sure, sure. Well, that's heartening then. Um, are there any other, uh, you know, long-term changes that you see, uh, you know, that, like you mentioned before, you know, any, any kind of specific things where you think, you know, that the, the business is going to be different from here on out? Well, certainly the consumer's habits have changed pretty significantly. So, um, you know, the uh, online shopping, um, you know, that whole part of the business, direct-to-consumer um, part of the business, grew a lot through um, COVID. And I think that's here to stay. Um, yeah. Every indication is that, uh, you know, people got comfortable and used to that, and it worked pretty well, and it was convenient, and, um, you know, beer showed up at your door, and, and so I, I think that's here to stay to some degree, but on the other hand, it's I such th- a new aptitude for breweries who are so used to having, well, have been forced by law to sell through a three-tier system right. using, you know, with this buffer uh, between consumer and brewery, and then to think about, and even in some of the digital realms, that's that's the same, but there are these means of marketing now directly you know, breweries here in California can sell direct and ship directly to consumers. Yep. And that's a, an entirely, you know, it's just such a, a big potential market and, and everything else for that. Um, but breweries haven't typically had that aptitude of figuring out how to, you know, to facilitate that and to, you know, to optimize for that. Yeah, I mean, the wineries in California sort of plowed that ground years ago with right. the wine clubs and a lot of direct-to-consumer. And there are, are other states that do allow that. But, uh, yeah, in California, we were pretty unique in that we can, um, you know, sort of be the distributor and uh, ship direct-to-consumer as well. Um, so we've had that model since we started. Mm. Uh, we have our own distribution company. We've been uh, distributing beer, at least in our hometown, for the whole 40 yeah, 41 years we've been in business. Yeah. And it's been a vital part of our sort of growth and, and success is that we've been able to really make that connection with the retailer and the wholesalers with our own folks and, and uh, had a pretty tight connection. Uh, not practical in every marketplace and certainly not legal in every state, but uh, sure, it, sure. It, it was part of our early success, I think, that we could do that. It was, you know, I think there was also that kind of necessity, the same reason that Brooklyn Brewery started their own distributorship right. in New York. And, of course, Stone has theirs and Russian Rivers, of course, still self-distributing mm-hmm. in their tiny local. Like, there's, you know, even when some of these original or, or first generation craft brewery started. I mean, there weren't distributors that, that even wanted to distribute those beers. And so if you wanted to distribute them, you just had to start the distributor to do it. Yeah. I mean, in our case, we had a, actually a great local uh, distributor had one of the major brands and he really wanted our beer. But yeah. when, when we did the numbers, um, we didn't think we could survive our first year if we uh, had to take that much less margin. Um, so for us, it was necessity. We, we really needed to make those extra few dollars a case sure. ourselves to, to pay the bills because we were, you know, a thousand barrels uh, back when we first started up. And, right, right. Um, it's hard to make enough money to feed yourself, let alone to, to try to grow the company. And I think there's that other tangible connection, like you said, between the, the accounts, the people selling the beer mm-hmm. and building that relationship with the brewery that uh, 
that ultimately really does matter. And you may not see it initially, but it does pay off significantly in, in, in that kind of uh, connections and relationships that come from it. Yep. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about innovation. This is the subject uh, that I really wanted to focus on because I have been endlessly fascinated with how you launch a mass market hazy IPA brand and blow it up into uh, you know one of the fastest growing beers in the history of craft beer. I, I want to talk about that more, but first, a brewery might have 99 problems, but your fruit supplier shouldn't be one. Old Orchard is already known for their quality concentrates, but they also pride themselves on consistent product and reliable supply. When brewers need assistance, Old Orchard is just an email, phone call, or even a text away. Based in Greater Grand Rapids, Michigan, better known as Beer City USA, Old Orchard is core to the brewing community. To join their fruit family or learn more at www.oldorchard.com brewer. Also, are you ready to brew like a pro? Pro Brew has the equipment, systems, and technology to take your brewery production to the next level. Check out www.probrew.com for pro-carb inline carbonation technology, profile rotary filling and seaming can fillers, the Alchemator inline alcohol separation system, 7 to 50 barrel brew houses, and more. ProBrew offers the craft beer industry innovative solutions to help you brew like a pro. Go to www.probrew.com for more information. So walk me through this, this process of uh, you know, creating, and you've now been expanding that family of, mm. of hazy beers. Uh, and in my opinion, done a fantastic job with it because they are consistent, they are shelf-stable, they produce an pleasurable drinking experience in all of the variety of, of conditions that uh, that retailers carry beer throughout this country and this very wide range of, of those kinds of conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, walk me through a little bit about how the idea behind I mean, and at the same time, Sierra Nevada is – there's a weight to the business and there are these relationships, distributors, products, et cetera. It becomes a big deal to launch new products mm-hmm. like that. And, there, and it takes a lot to kind of move those things along and find, uh, you know, find the momentum for them. Talk to me a little bit about how you are able to and what that innovation process looks like to develop new beers and then build something like that. Well, the, the process has certainly evolved as the industry and the marketplace has evolved. Um, you know, sort of going back to my early years, uh, you know, we were we launched with Pale Ale, Porter, and Stout. We had a really, you know, pretty simple portfolio, three brands. Uh, our first year, I decided I wanted to do a dry hopped um, IPA style beer, and, and we did uh, a Celebration Ale our, our first year and first full year in 81. Uh, made about 90 cases, and um, I remember hand-selecting the hops for it myself. I found a r- really nice field and of uh, actually baby cascades that really just had a, a wonderful aroma, and, and so chose those hops. Um, and then we did Bigfoot the next year, and, and uh, that, that was sort of our, our portfolio. We did introduce some— I love thinking about these beers that, for me, are just those touchstones, those classics, mm-hmm. as once being innovation products. Yeah. I mean, they were pretty far out in left field at sure. the time. I mean, yeah. if you if you look at the beer landscape in 1980-81, um, you know, you had light lager beer, and then you had just a few uh, distinctive beers. I mean, what Anchor was doing and, uh, you know, a few, right. few of my peers uh, who sort of came and went during those early years. There were, you know, six of us between um, 77 and 81 that, that sort of, plowed sort of new fields of beer styles and, right. and or reinvented, uh, I guess, old styles in most cases. 
Um, but the consumer wasn't ready for, a, a, you know, 50, 60 IBU beer, or at least not very many consumers. Yeah. Um, and, you know, something like Bigfoot Barley Wine, which, you know, 10% alcohol and, you know, huge hops. And, and uh, you know, it, it, it was, uh, you know, uh, one of those loved or hated kind of, of styles. Um, but so we, we did innovation different back then. And they right. were, you know, small and they were seasonal. And, and um, I started to want to do a lager beer um, in the mid-80s. And we didn't really have the technology or capacity or pressurized tanks when we first started. But... Um, we eventually did Summerfest, and initially with a top fermented yeast, and then I switched to a bottom fermented yeast as soon as we could um, adequately manage yeah. and, and uh, deal with a, a second strain, let alone sort of all the, the differences between our, our processes. Um, and then we went along, and we were capacity constrained for quite a few years. I mean, we were growing at 30 to 50 percent, and it really didn't make sense to, to try to make any, um, you know, big um, style uh, differences. I mean, we made a sure. few here and there in India Pale Ale. We made uh, fairly early on when we moved to the new facility. Um, and we started to get more into it just for the, I guess, the satisfaction as brewers of, of being able to experiment with uh, different yeast strains and, and certainly different raw materials. The more recent innovation has been, I guess, quite a bit more focused. And I think part of the the need to really pay attention to sort of where the consumer is and is going. And um, I, I'm um, asked at times, uh, it's been a number of years ago, my employees were like, can't we just make pale ale? It's, um, why are we <laughs> sure, doing all sure. these crazy things? Um, right. Um, but, the you know, the consumer was wanting to, you know, experiment with, you know, drinking beers that were, you know, very hoppy or very malty or sour or, uh, you know all these styles with uh, with the internet and with uh, the beer sophistication of the consumer. Um, we really had to start playing uh, in in different areas than we had done historically, and so we started to really focus on you know being innovative um, as brewers. And and I think the brewing team really liked it. I mean, it was sure. uh, uh, challenges and problem solving, and um, you know working on recipes and troubleshooting fermentations and again using you know different strains that we weren't familiar with and how to manage them and handle them so uh, i think it's it, way more fun and challenging to have to solve problems like that than it is to you know repeat the same thing now, there's yep. a benefit and as a brewer you also love dialing in and perfecting yep. over and over and over again yep. but it's also fun to solve new challenges yeah so um you know i think uh, you know now we do innovation in a very uh, thoughtful and orderly way. I mean, <laughs> early on, it was a bit of, of shotgun. Let's try this and see how it, it goes. And sure. You had mentioned earlier, yeah, that relationship that we have with our wholesalers and our retailers. Um, you know, we don't want to um, taint that by producing products that don't move through the marketplace. Um, you know, they, they don't want things clogging the shelves and we don't want things that don't sell either. So being more thoughtful about, you know, what the consumer is really looking for and, Know, trying to get the the mix of the liquid. Uh, oftentimes, the liquid may be great, but the brand or the branding or the brand concept may not resonate with the drinker. Yeah. And so, trying to figure out, uh, you know, what it takes to bring all those things together to to come up with a great recipe and a great liquid, but also to have a brand that uh, means something to somebody or is memorable in some way or takes them someplace um, that they want to come back to. 
And so uh, that's as hard of a, of a part of developing a new brand, I think. And, you know, you mentioned Hazy Little Thing. It was one that, um, you know, it was way out on left field from a brand architecture and, sure. and look and feel. I mean, it doesn't look anything like our, our, you know, historic brands that we've had in the marketplace. And I think there was both uh, an excitement to, to see how a, a really different looking and feeling brand would resonate with the consumer. Uh, and hopefully, uh, you know, a younger consumer, because a lot of our consumers have been drinking our beer for, you know, 30 or 40 sure, years. Sure. And as they're aging, they don't drink quite as much. And, and we, we have to keep looking for, uh, you know, how to delight and excite new drinkers as well. And so a hazy little thing was sort of born out of that. Let's just try a, a style that uh, we think is interesting and, and uh, is easy to drink. Um, you know, the... The IPAs um, have sort of gone from a range of, of, you know, very intensely hoppy and bitter and maybe very aromatic to, you know, more of a, of a beer that uh, still got a lot of uh, hop character and flavor, but not necessarily a wallop of, of bitterness. And so we realized, um, you know, let's try to appeal to a, a different IPA drinker than who might like Torpedo or, or one of our other uh, hoppier, you know, uh, more intensely uh, bittered um, IPA styles. Does this start with a creative brief of sorts? Do you think, hey, we want to make this kind of thing? Or does it start with just, hey, let's brew some things and see, uh, you know, try to create a broader spectrum and then narrow down? Do you have, uh, how does that creative process work? Do you articulate it in language first or think about the cons- who the consumer is and what flavors they want? You know, are there the parameters that you define that are musts? You know, how, how does that process work? It, it actually, uh, all of the above. Okay. Um, so some of uh, the ideas just come from uh, a, a brewer or one of us saying, let's try to do this or let's use this hop or let's, um, you know, dry hop this way or let's, you know, m- make it, uh, you know, slightly sour or whatever. So some of that's just sitting around thinking about, um, you know, beer and beer styles and what we might enjoy uh, experimenting with. Um, other times it does come from, you know, we really, you know, don't have this style of beer in our portfolio. We should try to figure out how to make a great one. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, it's from both sides from, um, you know, trying to listen to the consumer. And so we're, we're more focused there today than we probably were, you know, our first 20 or 30 years, we were just sort of doing our thing. And, yeah. um, you know, ho- hopefully we hit the nail on the head and the consumers liked it, but we weren't necessarily doing any consumer research, um, I, mean, I went to a lot of beer festivals and I sampled a lot of people. Um, and in the very early years, it was uh, fairly upsetting at times because you'd be in some audience and, oh, that's way too bitter. I can't drink that. And, and um, you know, I've, I've said, uh, you know, out of the people, you know, 95% of the people hated our beer, but the 5% of loved it, really loved it when we were starting out. I mean, people weren't used to hops the way they are today. And, um, so we had to educate the consumer and, and, and you know, tastes have changed and palates have changed and, and certainly the availability of, you know, such a wide range of, of beers in the marketplace today is, has really raised the bar for um, innovation and raised the, the bar for exploring, you know, flavors of, of beer that were unheard of uh, 20 or 30 years ago, you know, mango and all, right, all, all right. sorts of, uh, of things that are maybe naturally in the hops. And I'm, I'm not suggesting you got to add mangoes, but, um, right. you know, back when I first started, those kinds of hops would have been panned by you know, <laughs> all the big brewers and, uh, you know, they had no home. And, and so probably there were many, many great hops that were bred and thrown away because they were just too distinctive, too unique, too different than, right. 
the Germanic hops that uh, you know most brewers were used to using for aroma back then. Yeah, talk to me a little bit about that process of of taking an idea, even coming up with a you know a general you know recipe, and then dialing in the technical pieces of that so that a beer performs the way that you want it from a just a physical perspective. Because um, I think that's also a piece that may not you may not get as much credit as you all probably deserve mm-hmm. for. Um, you know, there's that creative piece. And if you're a brewery selling four packs, you know, that you keep cold and your customer can keep cold and then carry it out and they're going to drink it within two weeks, you know, then the quality piece of it's easier to maintain a technical quality in that kind of scenario. Or if a couple of folks let it go from, and it gets bad after three months, you know, you can give them another four pack and everyone will feel Mm -hmm. right. It's a little different mode for Sierra Nevada, given all of these means in which that beer is sold. And so the beers, you know, there are, there's a creative process that I love, which is an editing process and a dialing in process, um, to, you know, go for that, from that giant realm of possibility into the actual thing with these ingredients in a specific way, constructed mm-hmm. in a certain way that's going to provide that experience across you know, and still handle these kinds of rigors. Talk to me a little bit about that dialing in process. Yeah, that, that is something that is, is really critical for a brewer like us to really make sure we've got the flavor stability, the physical stability, and, and particularly with something like a hazy beer, that's even harder than a clear beer and, yeah. um, to, to you know, get to a, a product that is going to look the same, uh, ideally, you know, a month or two or three down the road and taste is, is close to the same as well. So we've had a high focus and, and um, uh, we've spent a lot of effort and energy and dollars on, on uh, instrumentation, on, uh, you know, laboratory equipment. Uh, on process you do improvements, have beautiful labs. Yeah, beautiful labs. Yeah, we, we've uh, we've felt from our early years, and we had a laboratory when we opened in 1980, and m- many of our peers didn't, and they didn't really have uh, much knowledge about either microbiology or chemistry. Um, I studied chemistry in college. Uh, I was going to go be a chemist and ended up being a brewer, which uh, does involve knowing a bit of chemistry. So it it worked well. And my partner was, uh, you know, focused on microbiology. And so we took it really seriously day one that we better make great consistent beer. And as we had cash flow, we kept investing in better uh, technology for packaging, better technology for analyzing for oxygen pickup. And today we've got a state-of-the-art lab with um, multiple gas chromatographs and instruments that uh, can detect down to parts per billion of iron or copper or some of the other bad actors for flavor stability. And so we we keep focus on that uh, at a very, very high level in our thinking as we're both brewing, buying raw materials, packaging, and, um, you know, the beer that goes out the door. Um, So it, it is important. And the bigger you get and the you know, longer the potential is for your beer to sit on the shelf, the, the more you better focus on that. And so um, we try to be state-of-the-art with the equipment and uh, have it be part of our thinking uh, as we buy new equipment and grow. Um, as far as the, you know, taking a brand like uh, Hazy or like anything, uh, we have a, a, a weekly sensory where we taste new products. Um, so that's, I did that yesterday. Every Thursday we get together and... Uh, you still do that after all these years. Yeah, that's, that's the fun part. <laughs> um, we've got uh, small breweries and we just ordered uh, two new three and a half barrel brew houses. So each uh, East Coast and West Coast brewery will have uh, identical three and a half barrel brew houses. But... 
Uh, Chico has a 10 barrel. Uh, we had a small nano that was um, a, a sort of glorified homebrew setup, and we're replacing that with a, a much more sophisticated mm. one, sort of like the one you probably saw at, at Russian River um, <laughs> yesterday. Yeah, um, yeah. Same manufacturer. And oh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And we uh, took the um, some... SS Brewtech has been a sponsor of the podcast. It's we can we can mention. All right, yeah. So <laughs> so we bought uh, two SX Brewtech yeah. brew houses for each brewery, and then Chico has a ten barrel brew house that I designed and had built by Paul Mueller Company about uh, oh, probably approaching twenty years ago now. Yeah. And then in Mills River we have a, a twenty barrel Casper Schultz, um, and so we do do a lot of R and D brewing on both of those brew houses and. So that comes to the, the taste panel, um, new product development panel every week. Um, and both beer and non-beer stuff we're playing with. So whether it's kombucha or some of the other um, sort of beyond beer products that we've got in the in the wings, um, uh, we taste and comment and, and you know tally the scores. And we typically taste East and West Coast together. So we. Uh, we taste the same beers um, on both coasts. Oh, you ship them back and forth? Yeah, with a big video screen, oh, um, cool. uh, both for new product development and ongoing products. So uh, okay. every week, uh, beers get shipped uh, between both breweries to blind taste uh, the same brand produced at each brewery mm. um, to try to make sure that we're aligned with um, flavor and consistency. Two weeks a year, a year, you're shipping yep. beer back and forth yep. just to have a giant combined remote taste panel. Yep. That's intense. Yep. Um, we think it's it's very important. And, you know, one of the things we strive for when we built the second brewery was you know, we want to make the same beer as, as closely as we can. And sure. so we jumped through a lot of hoops. I mean, we were shipping the same uh, malt uh, shipments out, malt lots going to both breweries mm-hmm. from the same maltsters, same hop lots. Um, and then we would get together and, and see, you know, what the differences were. Equipment is similar, but not exactly the same. Uh, both brew houses are built by Hoopman, but um, slightly, you know, different vintages and, and different designs. So um, just trying to get all that stuff dialed in so that if you get a pale ale in uh, you know, the middle of the country or the east or the west coast, it's going to hopefully all taste the same. That sounds like the finicky Ken Grossman that I've seen in action before. Um, when you came out to our uh, brewer's retreat in Austin, Texas a few years ago, a kind of fantasy homebrew camp, and we were brewing outdoors at uh, Jester King. Um, and it was it was a great event. Jeff Stuffings and Swifty from ABGB and Trevor from DeGard and Henry from Monkish and Alex Knoll from Three Weavers and Mitch, Mitch Steele and Avery Swanson and a few others. Um you know, but you were brewing in a small group around a, a Ruby Street homebrew system. And, uh, you know, I remember the whole process. The first one was when we, we got a recipe and we're like, okay, well, we'll source the ingredients for this. And you're like, no, no, we're going to send you our citra, our cryo citra, yeah. our selected cryo citra. I'm like, well, we can get it from, from beating, you know, from our, uh, our, uh, ingredient suppliers. Like, no, we're going to ship it to you because this is the one we want to use. Like, okay, we're going to do that. Um, and then I remember when they were filling up the kettle, the water at Jester King is really heavy and gypsum, like really, really heavy and gypsum. And, and, uh, um, you stopped us there we're like, we're, we're going to, we need our water for this. And, uh, you know, this is a homebrew batch that, you know, 10 or 15 people are going to eventually drink at that most. Um, and so, yeah, we sourced some RO water in order to make sure we were starting there. And then there was another moment there where I was watching you and you were, um, you were recirculating through a hop basket and, uh, and then just subtly, you know, the, the people in the group were helping out and they were, they were doing it, but I, they were just holding a little too high up. And I just saw you were here, here, let me, let me, let me hold that. And you, you 
grabbed that hose, you just moved a little bit lower so that it was just not going to splash to that same kind of degree. And I thought, this is a batch of beer that is not going to impact anybody in the world. And, you know, this process is something that you could have just stepped back and talked to people and been there as they did everything. And I watched it and it was, it was really instructive to see just how, even in a situation like that, where it may not have really mattered that you love brewing so much and you love the process so much that you're going to do it right. Even if there's no, uh, you know, upside to doing it that way. Yeah, that was a fun event. Actually, I was just talking about that uh, two, two days ago. <laughs> oh, yeah? Uh, yeah, because uh, we're, we're looking at doing some stuff in Texas. And I, I was like, ah, we, I did this event. It was a blast. Um, so maybe we'll get to do something like that again. We would love to. Uh, but I love that, you know, that. And, uh, you know, I've toured your, your uh, Asheville Brewery with brewer, professional brewer friends. And that's always an eye-opening experience because it is Disneyland for anybody who has worked professionally in any kind of brewery to see just that level of detail and that uh, kind of perfection. I mean, those pilot breweries that you talked about are absolutely incredible. Um, I mean, the Asheville or the Asheville pilot brewery is, I mean, that is more technology than most breweries have. Mm -hmm. Some small centrifuge, the open top fermenter Mm -hmm. uh, rooms in there. Uh, You know, it looks like the pilot brewery that somebody who could build their dream pilot brewery might build. Yeah, I uh, I didn't want to spend the money that I ended up spending initially. I was looking for a small used, uh, um, I wanted a nice copper brew house to sort of fit fit in with the theme. and I couldn't find one, and I finally, it was, I was running out of time, and I was like, okay, I'll just go to Casper Schultz. We'll just build exactly what we're, we're looking for. So uh, that was not my initial thinking. I was uh, uh, spending a, a lot of time and focus on the main brewery, and uh, when I started to get it wrapped up, I was like, oh, i got to get the pilot brewery done. So, um, But it, it was a fun project, and um, the, the team out there has done a great job with it and made some great beers or continue to make great beers through it. For sure, for sure. Well, I want to talk about uh, the relationship that you have with the agricultural side of beer. But before we do that, your beer deserves all your attention, and Clarion makes that a little easier. Their food-grade lubricants will help keep your system running smooth while also safeguarding your product from costly contamination and recall, because then you'll be in full compliance with food safety standards, all thanks to a simple switch to Clarion. A food-safe system lets you focus on your craft. We'll drink to that. Go to clarionlubricants.com to learn more. Um, you mentioned selecting hops or, or finding that lot of Cascade for mm-hmm. celebration way back in the day. Uh, and this kind of a tradition of working very closely with hops growers and working very closely with the ingredient side of beer, um, you know, those ingredient growers that support the beer industry, um, you know, has been such a, a kind of a hallmark of Sierra Nevada, whether it's uh, having having hops growers put in Neo-Mexicanus hops to support a certain brand or, or whether it's, uh, uh, you know, kind of pushing supporting, growing, you know, um, financially supporting new products that some of these growers might want or need the support and the commitment to in order to bring up to kind of commercial viability. Talk to me a little bit about your viewpoint on that relationship with the agricultural side. Sure. Um, I, I started going to Yakima actually when I had my homebrew shop. Uh, I drove up there in my old Toyota uh, station wagon and would pick up the hops for my homebrew shop for the year. So I, I went up during harvest. Um, we had family that didn't live too far from Yakima, and so I had a, a bit of a dual purpose to go up there. But um, 
I started going up right in the very beginning, and I've pretty much gone uh, just about every harvest. I think I, I missed uh, the year of 9-11. Um, we were in the car driving to the airport to fly to Yakima when, um, when the towers were hit. So um, that year didn't happen, and then last year we didn't go up for selection the first time. Uh, but I've gone up pretty much every other year and, or every year, and uh, I've had long, long relationships with some of the growers and grower families. Um, I've, I've dealt with, uh, in some cases, three generations of wow. uh, family growers, um, and it's been both, uh, you know, very rewarding to have that tight connection with such a vital uh, part of, of what we do as brewers, um, you know, to be in, involved in in. Um, you know, the agricultural side of what goes into our products. So we've been out in the fields, you know, for years and years and, you know, walk the fields and look at new varieties and experimentals. And uh, we've got a, a raw materials team that um, is quite involved. And um, we're actually um, just planning our trips right now to visit growers. And um, we'll go to Oregon, Idaho, Washington uh, several times during the harvest. Um, and usually we'll send folks up before harvest starts just to sort of look at the fields and and potentially select fields for celebration ale um oh, okay yeah that's that's a beer that we uh, usually hand pick the field that you the select your fields pre-harvest yes okay, okay. Uh, we, 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 now, we, now we're getting yes i love it i love it um just because you know we want a a, a field that's gonna look nice and mature um you know at the right time and yeah you know that's a, a beer that uses uh, centennial and cascade which have you know slightly different harvest windows and so you've got a sort of find the right overlap of, of when the centennials are not overripe and the cascades are ripe in order to to pick those two varieties for that beer um, if we waited until oh I see what you're saying it's the timing for harvest they need to align so that you can brew this fresh hop beer right at the right time and so you need those fields to be maturing along at the same rate yeah, and that's uh, and that changes year to year and huh. location to location so um, like Quite often, in the last few years, we've been getting uh, Cascades out of Oregon rather mm-hmm. than Washington because uh, they'll have a slightly earlier pick window, and um, we, we like the fields and like the growers. Um, so it's it's personal for us to, to, <laughs> to try to find that perfect combination, uh, especially for you know that beer, but for all of our beers, uh, for sure. Um, so that's why Celebration is so good. Yep. Yeah, okay. Um, but, but we've had that connection with the ag side and... and um, yeah, Geez, probably almost 20 years ago now, I started planting hops for us to brew with. Um, mm-hmm. So we uh, have or, uh, organic certified barley and hop fields that we own. Um, we've got about 100 acres of barley and um, about uh, well, over 10 acres of hops that we've uh, raised now for, for many, many years. Um, in California? In California, yeah. Um, we've uh, done some stuff back in North Carolina, but uh, it's a little moist for, for growing sure. uh, hops out there as far as disease problems. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we've uh, we've felt it's important to have that bond with the growers, and, and uh, I've been to many barley fields, and we've got close relationships with our maltsters and, um, as well as our growers and have tried to stay uh, tight to that uh, that whole uh, supply chain part of our industry. I love that. That's uh, you know this kind of ingredient focused you know supply team um, can be such a big part of the overall you know equation, and that you all have invested so tightly in that. You simply could order these things and have them come in, but being so active and 
proactive and pushing out there and, you know, uh, integrating even your own team members with the entire process of, uh, uh, you know, of ingredients before they arrive at the brewery is, is pretty ambitious. Yeah, we've we've uh, worked with uh, a, a, a group that Vinny is also in, involved with, the Hop Quality Group, which was uh, sure. started up by a number of, of uh, ingredient and quality-focused small brewers to really work with the growers and yep. to uh, make sure that everybody was following best practices. And um, we uh, had some of our team spend days uh, up in Yakima in the kilns and actually— uh, right do drying studies uh, with the growers um, to, you know, look at what's the best killing temperature for aroma hops and what's the difference between one dried at 130 degrees versus 140 versus 150 and, and actually did studies um, to, to look at the impacts that um, different drying methods have on, on aroma. Um, so we've been quite active in that, and, and since we've got gas chromatographs and uh, other uh, equipment that we can analyze uh, some of those aroma compounds directly, uh, allows us to sort of have feedback directly to you know the growers and to you know our brewers group that uh, yeah this did um, produce a you know nicer uh, aromatic uh, hop by using this kiln temperature. So, right. Uh, we've worked in conjunction um, as as an industry. Um, uh, of small brewers, um, a lot of these things used to be done by some of the major brewers that had a big quality focus, but a lot of that has sort of gone away. Not that they don't still have a quality focus, but a lot of that uh, involvement with the agricultural side of, of raw materials has, has sort of um, been lost with uh, a lot of the mergers and acquisitions that have happened in the industry. Sure, sure. Have there been any uh, particular uh, de- product development, uh, you know, with on, on that agricultural side, anything or experiences or products that you've been really proud of to help support and develop um, that have come up here? Well, certainly on new variety development, we've been quite active. Um, you mentioned Neo Mexicanos. Actually, one of our folks went uh, on a pilgrimage to, to go get the, that rootstock. Um, uh, with some of our, our farmers um, to um, move it from um, right. where they were growing it in the mountains to, to Yakima. Um, so we've been um, yeah, partnering with growers on new varieties for many, many years. Um, you know, Citra and, and some of the other varieties that are now so popular were experimentals. Um, I mean, even Centennial and uh, some of the other hops we used were numbered hops uh, when we first started playing with them. Um, so we, we've uh, felt that we need to support the grower with money if we're wanting them to sort of expand outside of their traditional uh, customer base. So if they can't sell the hop to a major brewer, they you know, have, a, have acres of hops they can't sell. And right. so we've quite often sponsored fields, um, you know, said, well, we'll pay for whatever comes off the field. You plant it and we'll guarantee, uh, you know, two or three years of of purchasing everything if you don't have a, a another market and and you know we're interested in it and sometimes it's worked out amazingly sometimes it hasn't been a variety that we uh, wanted to support long term but we at least did um, um, cover the costs and and the investment that that grower had to make to uh, experiment with a new variety they they probably wouldn't have otherwise right well if you don't don't swing for the fences you'll never hit a home run yep. so yeah yeah um you your technical focus and your dogged, you know, um, drive for quality 
you know, has defined Sierra Nevada for, for so much of its history. How have you gone about trying to imbue that spirit in a company culture and make sure that, I mean, since you can't do everything yourself and haven't been able to for a long time here, um, being able to, you know, push that, uh, philosophy through the business is a challenge that everybody faces, especially as, as businesses grow. Yep. You all have done an especially good job of making sure that that kind of focus permeates, uh, you know, the entire business. Talk to me a little bit about how you have made that happen. Um, it, it's a constant uh, challenge and struggle. Uh, it's something you got to keep working on every day because it's, uh, you know, it's not easy to necessarily have everybody have the same level of attention to detail that you would love to have. Um, oftentimes, the uh, workforce is not necessarily wanting to do the hardest thing that gets the right result versus the the easier path, and so you really have to try to instill that, um, you know, attention to detail. It's important. It's important for all of our livelihoods um, and it's important for the business to survive that we really keep that focus. You know, you got to hire the right people. You've got to train, you know, in a manner that, uh, you know, both is educational and and shows the the reason. It's just not do this because I say it's do this because it's important for these reasons and um, explain, you know, why it matters to, you know, watch DO or TPO or, you know, pay attention to, um, you know, hitting your mash temps every time and, um, you know, looking at uh, analytical results and tweaking the recipe. You know, we're dealing with agricultural raw materials. They change all the time. You've really got to sort of instill that uh, reaction and action um, mentality and philosophy. And we've got just some great folks who really, you know, care about uh, their work, care about their you know, what they produce, um, and they want to come enjoy it and drink it and have their friends say how great it is. And so, you know, it's personal for for our team, I think, to to try to do the right thing. Um, but you've got to lead by example, and you've got to walk the talk. And and um, you know, sometimes it's painful. Uh, we've dumped uh, plenty of beer that uh, was was fine but it wasn't right yeah um and uh, you know it's it's one of those things that uh you let that stuff slide or slip and then the i think the the employees are like you know that that wasn't acceptable before why is that acceptable now and so i think you you know you need to maintain your standards and you need to show you you do care and it is important and Sometimes that's a, a painful lesson for all of us. Um, you know, when something happens that's not right, um, you've got to do the right thing to, you know, make sure the consumer still gets the the best experience. So I, I think walking the talk and and investing uh, where you need to invest, both in people and equipment and improvements, uh, it's just an ongoing thing you do and need to do uh, in order to be successful long term. And you stayed pretty hands-on even though again you don't need to be um and, and tend to know most of those details that are going on in all of those breweries and that's that's kind of fun to see um when it comes to uh i mean we were talking about it earlier and you're saying that even something like a name for a beer is important to connect a customer to it uh have there been any beers that you absolutely loved that you just can't make anymore because for whatever reason they just haven't connected with people. Uh, you know, you have your own taste, you have this own, your own creative idea, but you know, sometimes it just 
doesn't create that thing that uh, that sticks. Yep. Um, unfortunately, there there have been plenty over the years yeah. that um, you know got wonderful beer. Um, you know why isn't it working? Why isn't the brand working? You know it's not that we uh, can't sell the beer. It's just that uh, you know the volume we talked about. You know the the expectation of sure. the wholesaler and the retailer is that it'll. It'll move quickly off the shelf. They don't want something that, that sits there. And, and so some styles are, I guess, less uh, approachable, desirable by um, a large enough audience to keep them supported through the marketplace. Um, I mean, our Porter and Stout are brands that, that have been with us since we started. And, um, you know, we, we can't find a, a big enough audience across most of the U.S. to support our producing those brands and keeping them fresh through the distribution network. So... Brands like that, um, you know, Otravase was probably one that was uh, maybe the the wrong brand. Um, the liquid was great, and and uh, we loved it and and had a following, but it it didn't resonate an, enough uh, to keep it on the shelf. Um, our Kellerweiss, uh, another one that um, you know, one of my uh, favorites. I love that style. I, I don't drink a ton of it myself either, but I, I do enjoy, um, you know, a, a Bavarian style wheat beer. And I think we, we nailed it. We, we made a really great one, uh, but still really couldn't find enough of an audience to, to keep it uh, fresh and on the shelf. So there are a few like that that are just disappointing. Um, but I guess you can have the, the pub brewers uh, just continue to make them for you so that they don't ever go completely uh, away. That, that is the plan. So, th- <laughs> so those brands will be available. And, and actually, for a while, Kellerweiss was the number one selling uh, draft beer in North Carolina on, uh, at the brewery. Huh. Um, it was one or two for years. Um, and you know, so people loved it when they had it at, a, at that setting. But as far as you know, picking some up off, uh, at a supermarket, taking it home, not, not so much. Yeah. Where, uh, where you guys go looking for the next beer ideas? You know, it's a combination of, uh, just our creative brewers, uh, you know, brewing something and presenting it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's ideas from uh, all of us. It's seeing what's, um, popular in the marketplace. I mean, when I started, uh, there was no real examples. I mean, there wasn't a lot of things you could go out and sample that were fresh and great and innovative. And um, I, I relied a lot on historical, you know, brewing books and, and you know, texts about sort of the, the beer styles that were around the globe. And then I traveled quite a bit, you know, went to Germany and in UK uh, quite often in Belgium and tasted beers there um, and, and got some inspiration from sort of, you know, that, um, you know, those historical styles. But today in the U.S., you can you know find such a wide range of, of beers and uh, unique beer styles that have been tweaked by American brewers who have a lot less um, um, rules and limits than most uh, brewers around the world. And um, so I think in the U.S., there's there's a huge um, uh, array of beers that you can get inspiration from. Yeah. For you, you've been doing this an incredibly long time. Why do you keep doing it? Uh, you, it'd be very easy for you to step out of the business, to, to not be involved, to hand it off and, and move on, uh, or at least enjoy the, the benefits and the fruits of, of many, many years of labors. And, uh, you know, and yet you still remain involved in the business. You know, I'm supposed to be semi-retired. Um, okay. I'm, right now I'm working just about as much as I... And you're I, there for Thursday <laughs> Taste Panel all the time. Um, 
No, I, I, really, I, I really do still enjoy the problem solving, the, the mental challenge of, of um, beer and brewing and the technology of beer and brewing. Um, the, you know, dealing with the um, people and personalities and insurance and, I mean, all that kind of stuff, not so much. <laughs> right, uh, um, right. But, um, no, the, I still get a lot of pleasure and joy uh, out of being, being involved with the brewing team and being involved, um, you know, on the marketing side to some degree. I'm, I'm a participant. I'm not directing things uh, at all anymore, but um, I, I still like to keep my, um, myself close to sort of what's, what's happening. Um, you know, I was uh, pretty involved in getting the kombucha uh, project going and moving forward. Our, our team did a, an amazing job figuring out, you know, how to do it in uh, safely in a brewery. And um, so we worked hard on that project with, a, you know, real cross-functional team, microbiologists. And uh, we tapped into Oregon State and, and um, brought in um, one of their grad students who was working on kombucha and um our R and D lab, and um, you know, we we really had a, a pretty fun, cohesive group that really again problem solved and um, figured out how to how to make it work in a in our environment. Um, what were the biggest challenges to figuring out to go from brewing beer to brewing hard kombucha? Um, well, the the I, I went to KombuchaCon maybe I don't know four or five years ago now, so the kombucha convention down uh, in Southern California and. and uh, I, I uh, saw a presentation that uh, scared the hell out of me about uh, the, the amount of Britannomyces found in, in um, most of the kombucha cultures. And, okay. and after that, I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't think we should do this. <laughs> and uh, yeah. But then we... Uh, well, you made a little brat beer before. But. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, and we were very, very careful about how we yeah. did that. Um, but we didn't want it widely, you know, in the brewery. So we worked really hard on, on designing our own SCOBY. Um, to not have bread in it, to mm. have uh, other yeast and bacteria that uh, had great flavors, but uh, didn't have the, the same kind of potential problematic uh, issues you might have with uh, bread loose in the brewery. Yeah. Um, so we worked hard on that and, and got to a place where we were, you know, happy and comfortable that, uh, you know, we could contain um, wild yeast and, and bacteria and keep it where it needed to be in the brewing process. That's interesting. Um, yeah, I hadn't really considered that that would have been a you know a broader concern like that. I think eighty percent of the uh, SCOBY cultures have Britannomyces as part of their um, makeup, so um, you know it's pretty widespread yeah. through, through the kombucha industry. Why? Uh, what led you to be interested in kombucha? Now, certainly, in this current beer market, we have lots and lots of hard seltzer, and it yep. seems to be taking off. Uh, um, you know, hard kombucha is certainly a thing, and there are, we've had some fantastic examples of it here at the magazine, and some that have not been quite as good. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that goes for beer or hard seltzer or everything else that we've been able yep. to taste. Um, why focus on on hard kombucha rather than say something like hard seltzer? You know, our our, our feeling was if it's going to be something we get involved with, it's got to have more of a soul and uh you know hard to, uh, soul yep uh, so these beverages have soul of course they do okay yeah uh, they've they've got some authenticity and they've got a, a, a you know reason for being where you know the the seltzer direction is really uh, alcohol and some flavor yeah and, and uh, we thought that um you know we were brewers and and uh, we'd rather brew something like kombucha which has got 
um, you know, a, a blend of cultures and managing yeast and bacteria populations. And uh, we just thought there was uh, a, a lot better aligned with sort of who we are as brewers. A more complex fermentation and oh, it yeah. wasn't just going to rip through in a, in 12 hours yeah. with a simple, simple sugar fermentation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we played around with a whole range of beyond beer beverages. So I, uh, you know, talking down the, the seltzer side, we've, we've played with yeah. um, things that, um, you know, are um, sort of out of our normal beer brewing uh, DNA. But, um, you know, again, we've got to make sure we stay focused on the consumer and uh, try to, you know, make sure we're producing products and beverages that are, um, you know, up to our standards, but also, um, you know, meeting the consumer's needs. Sure. Um, what uh, avenue of this, of you know, this kind of broader beverage world are you most excited to pursue innovation in uh, next? You know, I, I, you know, we're still brewers, yeah. and, and so um, you know, we're always going to be beer brewers, and, and that'll be, I think, primarily what we focus on. But um, we're looking at um, uh, things that are, um, I guess, more appealing to what the younger consumer is, is sort of going for. So. Um, maybe, um, you know, if it's a beer thing, less hoppy, um, maybe, uh, you know, a bit milder, uh, more easy to drink, some higher alcohol, some lower alcohol, um, on the innovation side, we're, uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to say what, we're, what we were working on right now, but, uh, we've got a lot of things I in the, figured I wouldn't be able to get that out. No, we've got a lot of things we've, uh, we've played around with, um, you know, some beers without alcohol, some beverages yeah. without alcohol. Uh, as well as, um, you know, alcoholic beverages that uh, are sort of out of our norm uh, as far as um, as uh, what you would think of as a Sierra Nevada beer. And so some of these won't be branded Sierra Nevada probably in the future. Why, uh, why separate the brands? Um, again, I think it comes down to consumer expectation. And, and uh, you know, if we put something out under the Sierra Nevada uh, banner and I'm, I'm, you know, in the family, um, it's got to, I think, represent the family well. And, uh, you know, we, we did uh, branded Sierra Nevada, our, um, you know, big little thing and, and wild little thing and um, um, hazy. And, you know, all those got branded with Sierra Nevada, but not quite in the same historic family. And so we took a, another step away um, when we did kombucha. So it, it uh, initially didn't have uh, Chico Fermentation Project as the uh, origin. Um, it is going to have uh, a little connection to Sierra Nevada in the future with, you know, uh, brewed by us. But um, again, part of it, just the uh, consumer expectation. If, if it didn't work, we didn't want it to, <laughs> to have a negative halo on, yeah, on what yeah. we do as brewers. And so we were a, a little cautious as we were sort of venturing uh, uh, that far out of the beer space. Sure. You know, and it, I mean, it makes sense also to think about these brands that connect with new consumers and become their brands because, you know, the while we view these brands as our businesses' brands, they consumer views it as their brand. Yep. And, you know, if you can, and sometimes those things don't align or shouldn't align because they're generational shifts mm -hmm. and, you know, kids don't necessarily want to, you know, drink the things that their parents drank, uh, or at least not immediately. They, right. may, they may eventually go back to them, yep. but at first they want, you know, they want their own thing. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and so I, I, that is, makes sense to me on a conceptual level to think about those kinds of brands that can connect and become 
the brands for, you know, younger people getting into that kind of phase of life where they're making choices about what they're drinking now? Yeah, I mean, there's there's debates I know in in many industries about uh, you know a, a, a family of brands or a brand of you know families and and um, you can either have them all under one umbrella or you can totally have them separate and there's different philosophies. But you know, for us, you know, whatever we do really has to reflect in a positive way on Sierra Nevada. That's you know that's our 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 history. That's you know what's got us to where we are. So we're very careful about. Uh, taking that Sierra Nevada banner and, and spreading it uh, too far uh, out of where we're, our comfort zone is with our current consumer just to prevent you know, alienating some of them. Yeah. Um, the way we normally close this podcast is with a kind of a bigger picture question. Um, what does success look like to you? What is, what is uh, success for Sierra Nevada Brewing Company? You know, we've we've had certainly uh, success uh, over the years. We've, uh, you know, like any business, we've had our challenges and and all sorts of uh, modern ones come at you every day with, uh, you know, ch- changing consumer and changing marketplace and consolidation and all the things that we're, we've we've struggled through. You know, for us, uh, success into the future would be a um, you know, a, a stable, um, profitable, growing company. Um, and you, know, you had mentioned uh, earlier that uh, you've been able to take this year to sort of reflect on how to, you know, build your your company strength and and add add to uh, you know things that help your employees and to, uh, you know help job satisfaction. And so those are areas that we continue to focus on. So success for us long term would be you know a, a happy, motivated, driven. Workforce, a um, you know brands that resonate with consumers, um, sort of a, a vibrant growth um, pattern for many years to come, um, and I think you know having just a great company uh, culture as well as um, you know focused on the environment and the things that are important to us as far as you know maintaining um, our company in the future for our kids and potentially grandkids to be involved with. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap it up. G&D guarantees that every chiller they build will hit 28 degrees without breaking a sweat. Sativa from BSG Hop Solutions captures citrus, pine, and tropical fruit notes. Old Orchard prides themselves on reliable product and consistent supply. Let ProBrew help take your production to the next level and make your system 100% food safe with Clarion Lubricants. Of course, if you'd like to support this podcast, go to beerandbrewing.com. Click on the subscribe button. Ken, thank you for joining me on the podcast. I would we normally would ask you where people can find it, but it's you're in Nevada. People mm. people can find you. Uh, it's been wonderful to have this conversation here at the uh, in the Abalone Room of the Little River Inn on the coast uh, of Northern California. It's been a real pleasure to join you today, and um, look forward to hopefully get a chance to to hang out a little bit and enjoy the ocean and and um, get a walk around the town. Fantastic! Thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.